All right. Uh, Kevin and Laura, can you guys both come up? Okay, uh, I'm going to ask uh, Kevin and Laura to come up here, uh, Caterberg. This is their last Sunday at Exodus. They're moving. Um, but uh, why don't you sit down, Laura? If you don't. Or you want to sit down, Kevin. You can let me make your wife stand. Um, first of all, Kevin, why don't you just tell us how, uh, how long have you guys been a part of Exodus? Uh, we've been at Exodus for coming up on five years now. Okay. And let me, uh, let me just say this about Kevin. He's one of these people. Um, he is a servant who needs, who doesn't desire the spotlight. I mean, a couple weeks ago, we were, uh, many times I've seen Kevin do things, take out trash, do other things, and um, I wrote him a note a couple weeks ago just telling him that I really appreciate it, because there's sometimes people do things you don't notice, and you realize, wow, he, they're doing all kinds of stuff, and, and Laura's the same way, but um, tell us where you're going, and... Uh, and then I'll have Laura answer a few questions. I haven't asked many of these questions, so I hope I don't tongue-tie on any of these things, but go ahead. Uh, we're moving to Madison, Indiana, uh, taking a job at a company called VSG Dover. Okay. Now, why don't you give the mic to Laura and me? Um, this is not like the move you've always wanted. I mean, Kevin's job restructured, and so he wasn't that, I was able to stay here. So what's God up to in your life, Laura? And how can we pray for you? I hope I'll know that in a couple of years, <laughs> what he's up to. Yeah, I, um, I thought we could easily find a job in a location we wanted, um, which was somewhere in the Midwest that was larger than maybe 100,000 people. I would have gone for that. So we kind of were left with two choices that I didn't like, which was South Carolina and Madison, Indiana, which... I just, Madison is 15,000 people, and that is very small for me, so. So you'd, got, you'd, given, you'd given God some parameters, and he didn't cooperate, <laughs> correct? <laughs> Which, uh, don't laugh at her, we all yeah, did the yeah. same thing, right? We all did right. the same thing. Right, in hindsight, I suppose I did do that. So, um, yeah, I mean, we wouldn't have chose Madison had we, had this come up six months ago, we wouldn't have chosen it, because we would have had more time to make a to be looking so so how do we pray for you not you but you um for friends okay and community that's legitimate yeah. okay kevin how about you how can we pray for you or what what do you sense got up to with you because um, this has been kind of up and down and not knowing and a lot of not knowing um just for uh, confirm that we made the right that we heard god and that we made the right choice Okay. And that we, f we find a church home and, and good community there. Okay. Okay. Very good. Hey, why don't you all, uh, just from your seat, just extend your right hand. It's just kind of a way of joining with us and blessing them. I'm going to pray for Kevin and Laura. And um, if, you, if you know them well, please, you can see them afterwards and talk to them and say goodbye to them. But God, I do want to pray for Kevin and Laura and thank you for, and, and for Emma and Kate as well. And I want to thank you for... Um, uh, just the way in which they've contributed to the lives of others here at Exodus, not just with tasks, but just in relationships. 
And God, for uh, just as Laura said, we pray, God, you, your word says you go before us. And so you have complete knowledge of what's going on even in Madison and relationships and friendships that, that you have already in advance prepared uh, for Laura. Um, you also you know what's ahead of Kevin and all the challenges he'll face at his new work, the challenges of even leading his family in a new situation and just all the unknowns there. So God, I pray you give them peace. I pray that you would give them uh, solid friendships and a, uh, a solid church. And uh, pray for their marriage because I know in times of transition, every uh, stress points are all hit. And so, God, we pray for peace and joy and rest. And uh, just as Kevin said, even as confirmation, God, that you're with them, that you're talking to them and they're hearing you correctly, uh, which I think they are. And um, I just, God, continue to confirm that to them. And um, uh, selfishly speaking, uh, bring them back to Bloomington. But uh, in the meantime, in the meantime, um, bring them joy and peace and goodness in a place that they don't know. And uh, we ask this all in your name. Amen. All right, thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Laura. No offense if anybody's from Madison, so <laughs> I'll say that on Laura's behalf. <laughs> Anybody from Madison? Just curious. Okay. Yeah, Kevin and Laura are now. Yeah, they are now. <laughs> All right. Uh, can start this morning with a comic strip, New Year's resolutions. You got to go to my old faithful Calvin and Hobbes. All right. Calvin says this, or Hobbes says this, are you making any resolutions for the new year? Calvin says, yeah, I'm resolving just to wing it and see what happens. <laughs> In the last frame, so you're staying the course. And Calvin says, I just stick to my strengths. I'm just going to wing it and see what happens. I got another one, found two. First one, and this one's harder to read, so I'm going to read it, and I can't read anyway because my eyes are bad. Calvin says, I'm getting del- disillusioned with these new years. They don't seem very new at all each they don't seem new at all. Each year is just like the old year. Here another year has gone by and everything is still the same. There's still pollution and war and stupidity and greed. Things haven't changed. I say, what kind of future is this? I thought things were supposed to improve. I thought the future was supposed to be better. In the last frame, the problem with the future is that it keeps turning into the present. You know, I picked these partially because I can relate to Calvin on these things. Yeah? I mean... How many of you have thought about making resolutions and then you don't? Or how many of you have made them and then you don't keep them? And how many of you have, it, have a let's just wing the next year philosophy of life? I'm going to ask you to raise your hands because my guess is we'd all, many of us would raise our hands. And how many of you would join me in feeling some sense of, okay, it's a new year. I mean, there's nothing biblical about New Year's rev- resolutions. There's nothing... Oh, uh, ultimately spiritual about it, but there are times where you hit a new year and you think, okay, what, what happened last year? Um, what's going to happen this year? And I don't know, is it just, am I just kind of doing this gerbil wheel of life and should I be doing anything differently? And is my life what God wants it to be? Because sometimes, frankly, you might feel like I might feel I'm a little bored with this or that. Or, and God, what? there's got to be more. I mean, it, sometimes, if you're like me, and you're watching New Year's Eve at Times Square and all these things and all this excitement, you think, you know, there's got to be more than what most of us are experiencing. Not just life in general, but life as followers of Jesus. And, and, and we tend to think, 
This is the model I think most of us tend to hold on to. And I would, uh, I'd plead guilty to this at times too. We tend to think this equation is true. If I believe in God and I'm a good person, then my life should work out and happiness and uh, happiness should increase, right? Believe in God plus be good equals good life, happy, smooth. I get jobs I want. I get money I want, whatever, all right? Believe in God, be good equals happy life. Unfortunately, that's an absolutely false equation. It's an equation maybe a lot of us in the American church have bought into, but it's not true. And we're going to look at a story today, and the Bible is full of stories of people who believed in God and were incredibly good and people of integrity, but things weren't always good for them. doesn't mean their soul was in a bad place, but their life didn't seem to be getting better. All right, so what we've done, and I, I'll probably, today's probably the last day, or maybe I'll do next Sunday, too, I'm not sure yet, about Daniel. We did some before Christmas, and the Christmas holidays we broke off, and I'm going to touch a little bit on Daniel today as a way to kind of think about your new year and kind of, kind of give you a different perspective on it. We already did chapters 1 to 6. Daniel's story about some Jewish people, Daniel, one of them, who were ripped from their homeland in Jerusalem by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were the uh, conquerors. They smashed Jerusalem. They take these young men and all these uh, exiles, they take them with them back to Babylon, modern-day kind of Iran-Iraq area, and they, they're raised in a foreign country. In other words, they, they, they end up living in a place they don't want to be. I mean, not like Madison, but it's even way, way, way bigger. They're living in a place they don't want to be, and their homeland is crushed, their hopes are crushed. So that's where we find Daniel in the first six books, the first six chapters of Daniel we talked about before Thanksgiving. You know, Daniel and lions, Zen, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and all these ways that God showed himself faithful. Chapter 7, I'm sorry, we're not going to do chapter 7 and 8, but chapter, the last couple of chapters of Daniel, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, the best word to describe it I would just say is bizarre. I mean, if you're into fantasy, science fiction-ish kind of literature and, and weird creatures and Narnia and Lord of the Rings, Daniel chapter 7 to 12 is for you. Because chapter, chapter 7, Daniel sees these, all, they're all about these visions of Daniel. Chapter 7, Dan, Daniel sees these visual, visions of these animals that are all kind of different. And they have wings and they have bones in their mouths and, they, and these animals destroy things. They trample on things. And God actually reveals to Daniel that this is kind of the future, what's going to be happening um, with countries and God's people. And in other words, things are going to be nasty. That's chapter 7. Chapter 8, Daniel sees a vision of a ram and a goat fighting. And they have these horns, and one horn's bigger than the other, and it's all this. And there's all kinds of prophetic things in there. There's things that Daniel was prophesying about the future of world history and it continues to be part of the future world history. But again, it's words in the chapter, and chapter 8 includes words like, and the, and the goat trampled on the people and destroyed. I mean, it's like destruction and trampling. Here, here Daniel, Daniel's where he doesn't want to be. He's looking for a little bit of good news, right? He wants good news, and what he's hearing is, yeah, these beasts, this goat, this ram, trampling, destruction, death. And Daniel's probably thinking, okay, God, I, that's it? That's what's down the pike for me? I thought good things should be happening to us and, your, and our people. And I'm not saying God wants bad things for us, but let's just follow along. So now, what we're going to pick up, though, go to the next slide, 
In Daniel chapter 10, we're going to jump to Daniel 10, and we're going to look at one story in Daniel 10 that uh, to me is very fascinating, and it's, um, I'm just going to read it, and I'll stop and comment along the way. So this is, again, this is in a section of Daniel having dreams and visions. He's recording all these dreams and visions he had that we believe still can happen. God can still speak to us that way. It's not like normal daily stuff. We still believe God speaks to us through supernatural ways because we believe Christianity is ultimately a supernatural religion, not just a moral behavioral religion. So supernatural things happen. God communicates to us in supernatural ways. So here's Daniel chapter 10. And uh, I'll just start reading. In the third year of the reign of King Cyrus of Persia, Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, had another vision. I wish I had the right place up there. He understood the vision concerned events certain to happen in the future, times of war and great hardship. So here we go again. More war and great hardship. And we think, well, God, what, shouldn't life be getting easier for us? When the vision came to me, I, Daniel, had been in mourning for three whole weeks. Okay. Three whole weeks. All that time I'd eaten no rich food. No meat or wine crossed my lips, and I used no fragrant lotions until the three weeks had passed. So he's, he's upset by what he's hearing from God. On April 23rd, as I was standing on the bank of the great Tigris River, I looked up and saw a man dressed in linen clothing. So now he's having a vision and a belt of pure gold around his waist. His body looked like a precious gem. His face flashed like, a li- like lightning, and his eyes flamed like torches. His arms and feet shone like polished bronze and voice roared like a ma- vast multitude of people. We don't know exactly what this being was. We don't know if it was an angel. We don't know if it was some pre-incarnate exp- uh, showing up of Jesus. We don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. Only I, Daniel, saw this vision. The men with me saw nothing, but they were suddenly terrified and ran away to hide. So I was left there all alone to see this amazing vision. My strength left me, and my face grew deathly pale, and I felt very weak. Then I heard the man speak, and when I heard the sound of his voice, I fainted and lay there with my face to the ground. Just then a hand touched me and lifted me, still trembling to my hands and knees. And the man said to me, Daniel, you are very precious to God. I love that. That line's repeated like three or four times in the book of Daniel. In the midst of Daniel sensing some things coming down the pike that are going to be challenging and hard and difficult, God's always reminding Daniel, as he would to us, he's very precious to God. So listen carefully to what I have to say to you. Stand up, for I have been sent to you. When he said this to me, I stood up, still trembling. Then he said, this is verse 12, then he said, Don't be afraid, Daniel, since the first day you begin to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your request has been heard in heaven. I have come and answered to your prayer. All right? Let me just stop right there for a second before we go to the next slide. So Daniel's been praying for understanding. I want to know, God, what's up? What are you doing? Not unlike in practical real ways, Kevin and Laura have been praying and asking God, what's up? What are you doing? Because we we're not seeing this. We can't figure it out. We're, we're sensing things we can't make sense of. So Daniel feels a little bit clueless about what's going on in his life. I'm, I'm assuming many of us can relate to that. Don't really exactly know. We just kind of live life. But in the meantime, we're trying to figure out what's God. We don't know. So then it goes from here. And this is where it kind of takes an interesting turn. Um, Verse 13, but for 21 days, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. 
Okay, what's that all about? This is like weird meter, right? <laughs> Daniel prayed 21 days ago, and this being, this messenger he sees in a vision says, we heard your prayers 21 days ago. I was dispatched 21 days ago, but the spirit prince of Persia has kept me from coming. Lord of the Rings, Narnia, what is this? What's going on behind the curtain? Because this being seems to indicate there's some spiritual battle going on that Daniel had no idea was going on. He was feeling clueless, and now he's kind of getting a little bit of insight as to what was going on. So for 21 days, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. Then Michael, one of the archangels, came to help me, and I left him there with the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now I'm here to explain what will happen if, to your people in the future for this vision concerns a time yet to come. While he was speaking to me, I looked down on the ground, unable to say a word. Then the one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. And I said to the one standing in front of me, I'm filled with anguish because of the vision I've seen, my Lord. I'm very weak. How can someone like me, your servant, talk to you, my Lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. Now that last line right there, my strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe, any of you felt that way before? Where you just kind of feel like the wind's been knocked out of you spiritually? Like, I don't, God, I don't even know. I'm, I'm in anguish. I don't know what's coming down or what I'm experiencing now. I don't like, and I don't know how to make sense of this. And I thought life was supposed to get easier. What happened to believe in God and be a good person and I can be happy? Because that's not working out for me. So, God, I'm feeling like, you know, I've been stocked in the stomach. What do I do? That's where Daniel is. I mean, he's incredibly human in this point, which I love the fact that he's incredibly human because I think all of us are incredibly human and we need incredibly human examples of people who are dealing with tough things in their lives. And that's Daniel. Then the one who looked like a man touched me again and I felt my strength returning. Don't be afraid, he said, for you're very precious to God. Peace, be encouraged and be strong. As he spoke these words to me, I suddenly felt stronger, and I said to him, please speak to me, my Lord, for you have strengthened me. So again, here we have this vision that Daniel has, this sense of, and he has a sense that what's coming down the road is going to be turmoil, tumultuous, and cause anguish. Daniel's hoping for, you know, beautiful things, smooth, easy life. And God's telling him, hey, no, here's some things coming down, down through history. And Daniel doesn't know if that's going to be part of his life or future life. But it, either way, it's not that pleasant. And then there's this thing about, yeah, you prayed, but I was battling spirit princes, blah, blah, blah. Let me go to the next Let me tell you three things I want to, ch- or go to the next one. Uh, three things I want to tell you from this passage that I want to challenge you to think about how you think about your year this year. First of all, uh, things are not what they seem. There's more going on in your life than what you see. We talk about a lot at Exodus about we believe the invisible world is just as real as the visible world. So there's more going on, the way I like to say, there's more going on backstage than what you see in your own life. Now, please don't take that to mean Every time you get a parking ticket in downtown Bloomington, Satan was behind it. I'm not saying that. The city council is behind it, but not Satan, all right? 
but there may be more going on to the things you're struggling with right now than just you making a bad decision. Because here's what happens. Here's what happens. If we're coming under the assumption of, well, if I believe in God and I'm a good person, life should get easier. If that's your assumption about the Christian life, which again is wrong, but if that's your assumption, then when hard things come, you only have two things, two options to consider must be true then. Because if that assumption is true, then, and then if hard things come to me, either A, I'm blowing it, and I'm really screwing up somehow, and God must be mad at me, or B, God's holding out on me. God's just not doing what he, he's not, he's not fulfilling his promise. See, because you realize if you make a false assumption about the Christian life, believe in God, be good, easy life, if you have that false assumption, then when hard things hit, you either go to self-condemnation. I'm blowing it. I must be sinning somewhere. I, you know, I, oh God, what am I doing? I must have brought this on myself. It must have been that test I cheated on 25 years ago. Now God's getting me or whatever. You know, maybe you don't think that way. I think that way. You kind of go to these self-condemnation. What did I do to bring this on myself? Or the assumption, that, that, that the conclusion that nobody, else, nobody wants to say, but we think, God's holding out on me. Because if I'm believing in God and I'm trying to be good and, and if it's, life isn't going well for me and I don't think I'm blowing it, I don't know what else I've done wrong, then maybe God's just not fulfilling his promise here. Because that's, that's, that's where we go if we assume that equation is true. Instead of realizing you know, there's, there's, things are not what they seem. So maybe things going on in your life Maybe some choices you've made that you can correct, but there also may be other things happening that you don't see. There are things happening that you don't see. You have, we have no idea what's going on in, in a lot of times in our lives. And I don't mean that like we're stupid people or ignorant people, and I don't mean, again, to say that you blame all of your problems on, you know, Satan. Every bounce check isn't Satan's fault, maybe just because you didn't do the math right, right? So things are not what they seem. That's one thing Daniel's realizing. And so this next year, things are not what they seem in your life. There's always more going on. Second thing, you live in a world at war. And I don't mean a war with Al-Qaeda. I don't mean Democrats, Republicans. I don't mean any other war you might think in this sense. The Bible tells us that Satan is the enemy of our souls and Satan will do anything he can to kill steal and destroy but the problem is sometimes we're shocked that satan actually begins to steal kill and destroy even though the bible tells us he'll do that satan hates your marriage he wants to kill steal and destroy it he hates your relationship with your parents he hates your relationship with your kids he wants to steal kill and destroy and if we don't live in that mindset, then when bad things happen, it totally throws us. One of the analogies I've used before is, yeah, I've told you before, I'm a, real, I'm, a real, I, I'm a real World War II, I love D-Day kind of analogies. But we tend to think, here's how we tend to think sometimes of our life as a follower of Jesus. Remember, some of you are old enough to remember the TV show, The Love Boat. The Love Boat. Da, na, 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 na. And if you weren't, just think cruise ship. You know, carnival, princess, whatever. We tend to think the Christian life, and therefore the, the, we think the purpose of the church, is like a cruise ship. 
once we've signed on and bought our ticket, i.e., we've prayed the right prayer to follow Jesus, I did the right thing, then isn't it God's job to get me there comfortably, safely, and with quite a bit of joy, pleasure, and delight? And we think that the role of God is the love boat, Captain Steubing, and all these people, and it's my comfort is what's important. And we tend to buy into that model of the Christian life. The way the Bible talks about the Christian life is more like a battleship at Normandy. Still both ships. But the, ba- the mission of the love boat is comfort and just getting there. The mission of the battleship is setting people free. And if the mission is different, the experience is going to be different. I've never been on a battleship in terms of a, 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 I've never been a sailor or anything. But my guess is not a whole lot of complaining goes on to the captain because the beds aren't comfortable enough. Because the mission defines the experience. And if the mission is to set people free and the mission assumes there's an enemy, then you will get opposition. Not much opposition on the love boat. On a battleship, there's opposition because something is incredibly at stake. The freedom of people your own freedom, alive, awake, and free, that's at stake. And if you're going to live your Christian life as if you're the love boat mentality, you will be disappointed with the God you've created from that world because that's not the God of the Bible. And you will be disappointed with that God or you will fall into incredible self-condemnation because it's not working out for you. If you understand the worldview of the Bible and the way the Bible talks about it is that Uh, that Satan is the one who will always try to steal, kill, and destroy. He's scheming, he's sneaky, he's always trying to destroy us. He's always after our hearts. If you start to think in in that world, things will start making a little more sense to you. Again, you won't be able to understand everything, and I'm not saying every time your, every time your wife says something hurtful, it's not Satan talking through her mouth. Don't go there. But it could be Satan telling you, She always does that. She doesn't love you. She doesn't really care about you. And you might start believing some of those lies. I remember reading a book one time about a guy who was talking about his struggle in his marriage. And he said he started realizing that maybe there's a third voice in the conversation that needs to start paying attention to or rather not paying attention to. Because, you know, you have this argument with your spouse about something. And then you start start thinking, he always does that. He's not sensitive. He's not kind. She doesn't care about me. She's hurtful. And you know that's not true about them. But yet somehow you're hearing that in your head and maybe there's another voice whispering in your ear and maybe you need to consider that there's a third person in the conversation, not counting the Holy Spirit because he wants to be part of that conversation too. But Satan knows what he's doing. What, 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 what would Satan want more than just destroying your marriage, destroying the trust? So he will tell you, yeah, she's, she doesn't really care about you. Here she goes again. Because again, there is a battle going on and Satan is out to kill your heart. So you live in a world at war. Daniel understood that after this. The last thing is God is for you. Three times in the book of Daniel, either an angel or a messenger or whatever form it was said to Daniel, Daniel, you are precious to God. You're loved by God. You're loved by God. God's for you. God's saying to Daniel, I'm for you, Daniel, in the midst of this. I'm not against you. I mean, here, Daniel's 
in, he's in a place he doesn't want to live, speaking a language he doesn't really want to speak. He wants to be back home. He's hoping God will bring them back to Jerusalem someday, but it doesn't sound like it's going to happen in his lifetime. But God says, but I'm for you. I am for you. Because again, when, again one of those conclusions we draw is, well, God must not be for me. If my life's not ha- happy and things aren't working out, and either I'm messing up or God's not for me and God's holding out on me. But God is for you. He's not holding out on you. I mean, even, you know, God said that you're precious, Dan. You're deeply loved. Actually, in the latter part of the book of Daniel, it talks about these hardships that are coming. And it says they come because God wants his people to be refined and purified. Now, if you're like me, you kind of think, did I sign up for that? I mean, I thought I signed up for like peace, joy, alive, awake, and free, but refined and purified sounds a little bit uncomfortable. Did I really sign up for that? But it's pretty clear in Scripture that God uses those kind of events, events you didn't even necessarily, you did not necessarily bring on yourself. It's just the reality of living in a world at war, that things that will come your way can be used by God to refine and purify you to be alive, awake, and free. But if your assumption is anything bad can't be of God and you try to go around that or avoid that, you may miss out the alive, awake, and free kind of life that God has for you because that's how he's going to get you there. And we tend to think, well, I don't like, you know, we want to jump over it, go around it, or just kind of pretend it's not there. And again, it's not that God enjoys your pain, God enjoys you being alive, awake, and free. And he knows there are certain ways and things he can use to bring that about. So don't ever attribute evil to God. But God does as he can use some of these things in our lives to refine us. I, I'm, I, I guarantee you if we talk to Kevin and Laura 12 months from now, we'll probably find out ways in which God has refined them in ways probably they didn't even know they needed to be refined. Just like 12 months from now, some of us will go through things in the next 12 months of our lives that will be challenging, hard, difficult, uncomfortable, and even painful. And if we had a time to line up next year at this time and took testimonies from people who went through something in the year that was challenging, uncomfortable, painful, whatever, my guess is we could hear from people who said, this is what God's been doing in my life, and I see some really good things happening because of this uncomfortable thing that happened. So look into this next year. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying okay, let's you know, buck up, people. God's going to deal you some bad cards this year. I'm not saying that. Because God also, he promises joy in the midst of those things. He promises peace and rest in the midst of trial and tribulation. Jesus even said, I've overcome the world. Don't worry. You can still have joy and peace and rest in the midst of things that are out of your control. Painful, uncomfortable, difficult, challenging things out of your control. He promises peace, joy, and that's something you should never stop pursuing with great zeal. Because God promises that. He promises peace, joy, rest, wholeness. He promises that. What he doesn't promise is comfort and ease. And so when discomfort or dis-ease or pain comes your way, don't blame God, but realize that may be the path he's taking you through so you can find a deeper joy, 
and a deeper peace. I'll, I'll, I'll finish this. I wasn't planning to talk about this, but I, some of you were there and some of you weren't, but uh, uh, about a month, about two months ago, did a funeral of uh, a three-year-old girl named Gemma Geezer who died in her sleep, really. And uh, Jim and Juliana had been part of the church for a couple of years. Some of you know them and some of you were at the funeral. But Jim and Juliana, Juliana stayed in our house for a few days before the funeral here. And I remember them talking about what God was doing in their lives through this. And I thought, they, they just lost a three-year-old daughter. And I, I, I still, every time I think about it, it still kind of blows me away how, how I would process that. But I remember hearing them talk one night in our kitchen, and I shared this at the funeral. I remember uh, Juliana was sitting in this big yellow chair in our kitchen, and Jim was over at our kitchen island. I was, the dining, I was at the table. And I remember hearing them speak about the pain in their lives, but they seemed to come from a place of deep joy and contentment and peace that I wonder if you only get through if you go through pain. And in a weird kind of way, I envied them. I didn't envy the pain of losing a child, but I envied the depth of, their, of, of joy and strength. And I thought, where, how do you get there? And it seems like sometimes you get there by how you deal with the hard, uncomfortable, painful things of life that aren't your fault. You didn't bring on yourself, and God isn't bringing on you to punish you. It's just living at life in a, in a broken world. And I remember thinking, there must be a way to that kind of joy and strength and peace that is a direct result of how we handle the bumps, the potholes, and the painful things of life. So again, not that God brings those on, not that God looks for it. He did, God, God finds no pleasure in our pain and our suffering. He finds no pleasure in us being sad and broken. He finds incredible pleasure in us finding those deeper places of joy and peace and rest. And so as you go into this year, pursue joy with zeal. Um, but as things come your way that weren't expected and weren't planned and were uncomfortable, um, continue to pursue joy with zeal. And see what God does in your life. So we finish every Sunday uh, with communion. And we don't finish because it's like a period on a sentence. It's more of an exclamation point on a sentence because we do it because, <laughs> like I shared 